Hello, welcome to Star Cells and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications as well as discoveries that point to God's existence. My name is Jeff Zwerink. I'll be your guide today as we talk about DNA design and a cognitive bias. But before we get into that discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our Reasons to Believe channel so that you can be notified of new weekly videos. Learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at rtb underscore official. Fuzz, good to have you in the studio today. Jeff? So I'll let you talk about DNA design in a few minutes, but I wanted to kind of start off our discussion talking about a cognitive bias that I became aware of and I thought was very fascinating. And I actually heard about this from Mark Perez, uh, so I can't claim credit for having come across this research on my own. But I know you, you've got a sibling, so I'm going to ask you a question, put you on the spot a little bit here. Who'd your parents favor, you or your sibling? Well, uh, probably my brother. Probably your brother. <laughs> yeah. You know that if I were, according to the study here, if I were to ask your brother, whether he's older or younger, it doesn't matter. He would say it was you that they favored. And, and what's fascinating, I'll just give a little bit of a, a background story. Uh, I have an older brother and a younger brother. And we got up into adulthood. And uh, my parents, I, I know they talked a lot about treating us fairly. But uh, we were sitting around talking with my brothers, and somehow the topic of who got favored, because I always know there were uh, 10 years between my older and younger. And so my younger brother would push buttons at my older brother, and my older brother would respond back and forth. And so they'd go back and forth. But we were sitting around discussing about who, 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 did, who did dad like better. And it was funny because uh, my older brother thought dad liked my younger brother better. My younger brother thought dad liked me better, and I thought dad liked my older brother better. It's like all three of us were thought, oh, no, it's somebody else. And what I find fascinating is that this study actually helps explain why we tend to think that. That's not a Ua's wearing thing or a, a Rana thing. It's a cognitive bias we have. And, and the bottom line is this, that we are more prone, more likely to recognize the challenges and obstacles that we have faced and assume that other people haven't mm. seen them. We, so we see the obstacles we face and we see the benefits and blessings other people get. And we have this bias that recognizes those two things. And so we always tend to think that it's been unfair to us. Mm. And what's uh, the, this uh, paper... Uh, it was published in the uh, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Uh, it's called the Headwinds Tailwinds Asymmetry: An Availability, excuse me, an Availability Bias in Assessments of Barriers and Blessings. Mm. And what they did was they went through and set up seven different experiments to explore this uh, this recognition that people tend to notice the hardships more and in themselves and the blessings that other people receive. You see, is that, what, what accounts for that? Is that really going on or, or to try and get an understanding of it? And, and one of the things they recognized or have aware is that very often um, just in your own life, you'll, you'll recognize 
you'll recognize the barriers because those are things that you've had to overcome. And you're going to talk about how hard the things have been because it kind of makes you sound a little better, makes you appreciate where you are. There, there's this long history of literature that recognizes that. But really what they were looking at is to say, is there something more there rather than just trying to self-aggrandize or you know, to tell a story to get more mm-hmm. sympathy or to get uh, you know, things of that nature? Mm-hmm. And so they designed seven different studies. And one of the first studies they did was to get a group of people together, uh, conservatives and and liberals, and to ask them about the Electoral College, about fundraising, about issues in trying to get Congress to cooperate with the president. And uh, if you go to the first slide there, this is the... This is their results they found, and it's a little hard to read this, but if you notice there, the Democrats, the darker color, the Republicans, the lighter gray, uh, Republican on the right, Democrat on the left, liberal on the left, conservative on the right, independents in the middle. And what's interesting is you look there, who has the harder time due to the Electoral College system? That all of the Republicans thought the Democrats had an easier time, Mm. and the Democrats thought the Republicans had an easier time. And, you know, and this is people that identified liberal or by Democrat, Republican. They did the same thing, identifying liberal and conservative and found this same asymmetry there Mm -hmm. that and that asymmetry persisted. Who has the harder time financing campaigns? Uh, You know, again, same thing. Democrats thought Republicans had the easier time. Republicans thought Democrats had the harder time. And it was pervasive across all. All of these systems here. Now, you know, just it can't be the case that Republicans and Democrats have a harder time. Both, uh, you know, there's got <laughs> right. we're, we're just missing something there. Right. Um, and so, what this study showed is that again, there's this recognition uh, or this there's this bias that the other side, your side, is always perceiving the other side as having a harder thing. Now. There was a aspect of who wins and who loses in this. And so what they did is design another study where they went and looked at uh, professional or uh, I think I almost posit it was, you know, it was the NFL looked at difficulty of schedules. And so this wasn't, you know, where we're looking up all oh, the seasons about to start and people are getting invested. Um, what they did was looked at it, you know, a few weeks out where people were just looking and asking whose schedules were harder or not. And what was interesting is that every, virtually every person identified their team as having the tougher schedule. And it didn't matter whether your team had had a good year in the past. You know, so if you'd had more than nine wins, you still thought you had the harder schedule. If your team had had a bad year, in the less than nine wins, you still thought your team had the harder schedule than what was going on out there. And again, it's what it's recognizing is there's this something about the way people are perceiving doesn't accurately reflect that what's there. And and going back to the discussion about the uh, the political, one thing they found is that. You'd think, okay, maybe if people had studied harder, were more invested, knew what was going on, that this asymmetry would disappear because they recognize more of the process and how it works on. It turns out it's actually the reverse, Mm -hmm. that the less invested people are, the less this asymmetry shows up. The more invested people are, the more the asymmetry shows up. 
And again, I think the, the, the contention is and the argument of the paper is that the more invested you are, the more you're aware of the barriers that come up and the more you tend to dismiss the blessings you have. You see the struggle or whatever, and it just always shows up as the other side has it easier, we've had it harder. And they actually looked at siblings as well. They took a whole a serve, another study where they looked at siblings uh, you know, and they restricted it to just two siblings because mm-hmm. there's a whole lot more dynamics. And again, they found that same asymmetry. And just study after study after study, they, they did seven different studies, and they all show this asymmetry. In fact, I'll show, show another one here. Um, this is where they did a test where people just had to perform a set of tasks. Mm-hmm. And in one time, so it was an even number of tasks, but there were harder tasks and easier tasks. And in one time, the green tasks were easier and the blue tasks were harder. And in the other group, the the green tasks were harder and the blue blue tasks were easier. And again, they went through and then they went back and had people say, okay, how many of the tasks were blue? And what they found is that where in the blue headwind condition, everybody identified that there were more blue tasks, because those were the harder than green. And in the green, the same thing. Everybody identified, recognized the barriers far more mm. readily than the easy tasks. And and they even did that when, uh, you know, as, as they, when they were going to recall or recall mm-hmm. uh, questions over different things. Uh, you know, one more, uh, go to the next, results of the next study. This is one, this is the study where, they did a, a trivia contest or a trivia contest where they had uh, five easy categories, five hard categories for each team, and both teams saw the categories ahead of time, so they knew what categories they were facing. They, I, I forget whether they knew what the other ones were facing, but they knew what they were seeing. And they went through, did the did the competition, and then they went back and asked the question to have them recall the categories that were theirs. Yeah. And um, you can see there that uh, the easy ones, everybody had a pretty good time recalling the easy ones, even from their own and for their art. But for the difficult ones, everybody could remember their own difficult ones, but didn't remember the difficult ones for their opponents. Uh, and not just even having to recall, if you go to the next one, when they just did it, so they listed them all up there, showed them. So where you could just recognize the categories. So this one, you had to remember the categories, write them down. This one, here were all the categories, just choose which had which. And again, even having all of the categories out there, that's, that asymmetry still persists. Mm. There's this tendency to remember the challenges and difficulties you face, the barriers, and not remember the benefits you have. So I think... You know, in these seven or six of the seven different categories, they went through and I think pretty clearly demonstrated that people will remember what what comes to mind when they think about something are the challenges and difficulties, and they fail to remember the blessings and benefits that have gotten them there. The one that I thought was the most informative that I wanted to talk most about or talked about today was one where they were looking at accountants. And, uh, you know, there, apparently there's an experimental and a non-experimental accountant that you can have. And it's beyond my ability to describe those. But what they did was 
to ask the accountants how they're doing. And, you know, you know, professor, you know, in terms of being able to write grants, get their grants funded, get professorships, get tenure, those sorts of things, looking at all of that. And they found that whether you're an experimental or non-experimental accountant, that both people saw the challenges being about the same amount. You know, there wasn't an asymmetry there. But what they found was that as the perceived level of challenges and hardship went up, that increasing perception of hardness and barriers corresponded with a willingness to engage in morally questionable behavior. Uh. So there was no difference in what they thought morally questionable behavior was. And this takes it out of the I just want to make make things seem harder or easier in terms of mm-hmm. characterizing yourself. This was something where they wanted to test, does this have a consequence for how people act? And what they found was that the mm. harder something is – the the more you perceive that things are unfair, you've had more barriers, more obstacles to overcome, statistically speaking, the more likely you are – to engage in morally questionable behavior so that you can level the playing field. Yeah. So you feel like that that immoral behavior is is justified, it's warranted because you got the short end of the stick. That's that's what it kind of it, it came across as because it wasn't experimental accounting was a newer field that you know you could argue it's harder to get in, harder to get, you know, there's lots of things going on there and it didn't matter whether you're an experimental or non-experimental accountant. Whether as to the questionable behavior. So you might think, okay, everybody in the experimental accountant behavior thinks, okay, this is a harder field. We got to get it established. No, it wasn't that. It was the perceived level of the barriers you faced was what Mm. determined whether you were more open to morally questionable behavior or not. And I thought that was interesting from two perspectives. One is I've just been thinking about or you know recognizing and reading and talking about how we are dealing with racial and gender and stuff, particularly in science and how we teach it. And I don't want to spend much time on that. There, there's another discovery I want to talk to that relates to that. But that whole mindset is kind of emphasizing the barriers that we're facing. Which, if we're already inclined to notice the barriers, and increasing barrier or the perception of increased barriers leads to moral questionable behavior, we want to be careful how we deal with that. And I think that's something we need to think about: how do we actually address and deal with things that have been wrong and and uh, and perceived injustices? How do we do that? Uh, you know, what what I found interesting. That, you know, I'll just kind of in briefly. A passing mention that people have looked at how to deal with this sense of fairness, and what they found is that where there's been unfairness or justice or perceived level of injustice, people who have benefited from that don't really mm-hmm. benefit much from being pointed out how things are fair, how things are fair. But where things have been corrected and things have been fair, where there's this perceived injustice, as you've been pointing out how the playing field has been leveled, that actually leads to more positive and healthy outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so if we're doing something that emphasizes and perpetuates a sense of injustice that doesn't exist now, even if it did in the past, we're actually, we may be making the problem worse mm-hmm. rather than pointing out, if, if I get what this other study is saying, by pointing out how things are fair, that actually helps people mm-hmm. come to better outcomes. And so this is, again, how do we go about doing this? And why I bring all this up 
is because when you look at how Christianity has, throughout its message, what its message is, you know, I was just in, or reminded of this passage from First Thessalonians. It says First Thessalonians five sixteen through eighteen. It says, "Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus." Mm-hmm. That the in the discussion of this headwinds tailwinds asymmetry, what the authors were pointing out is that gratitude is a key component to having a healthy outcome, to mm-hmm. feeling healthy, happy, enjoying life. And this headwinds, tailwinds asymmetry, where we tend to notice the barriers instead of the blessings, removes gratitude. Mm-hmm. You know, and here you have Christianity saying, hey, don't almost don't pay attention to the circumstances. Whatever right. circumstance you're in, pray, rejoice, right. be thankful, because God is still with you there. And I think, one, it's just... One, I think it's a message of great hope mm-hmm. because if my happiness was contingent upon the circumstances I was in, my happiness or my joy in life is right. always driven by somebody beyond me. That is a helpless, hopeless feeling. Whereas what Christ is, or God is saying through, through Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians is, no, if you focus on who God is and give thanks and rejoice, that will bring that joy to you. And we see evidence of that in our studies of humanity. You know, mm-hmm. what, uh, what the, the end of the paper, the authors recognize two things. One is that by focusing on the barriers, you undermine a grateful attitude, which leads to a, a worse outcome. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that, we, we tend to, if that's if you had a lot of, you know, there are just a lot of barriers. I mean, there's been, throughout human history and even in, you know, in American history, there's just been a lot of people who've taken advantage of. There's things that I've struggled with here. I can focus on those. I'm easy to recognize those. But God says, no, let's do something else. Instead of being resentful, let's have an attitude of gratitude. In fact, I, I loved, he had a quote from Frederick Nietzsche. He said, uh, noted in his Eco Homo, nothing consumes a man more quickly than resentment. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're inclined to notice our barriers, that will build resentment. What's the mm-hmm. remedy? Well, gratitude is the remedy to building resentment. The flip side of that is that people who've benefited from those injustices often mm-hmm. count their accomplishments as the work they've done rather than the blessings they've received. Mm-hmm. I am keenly aware. I, I remember when I was in high school and even into college, I'm like, wow, look how well I've done because God has blessed me with a pretty analytical, careful, with a mind that can do certain things that are valued in school well. I took credit for what I had been blessed with. I mean, I worked hard at it. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Yeah. But I'm taking credit for something that I was essentially given and not recognizing it as a blessing. Mm-hmm. Even getting through graduate school, the blessings from my families and the support and encouragement that have come mm-hmm. there were critical to that. And I've learned to appreciate that more, which helps me live more well, live better in life. And so right. the, the things that I found fascinating and were intriguing is that I think this points to the truth of Christianity, that God tells us to rejoice and be grateful in all circumstances, don't focus on the barriers, don't focus on the hindrances, work and overcome them, but don't let those consume you because that will lead to mm. resentment in a very, mm. 
very unhealthy outcome for you. So the way to live life well is to live it the way God has told us because mm-hmm. that's he's the one who knows and designed us. And we see evidence of that in the scientific literature. Yeah, that's great stuff, Jeff. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. So I think you have some stuff on uh, DNA design. So rather yeah. than looking at the design of people, let's look at, <laughs> hey, the design of people. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, to kind of help us have a, a, a proper frame of reference to, for the discovery I want to talk about, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Gremlins. Have you seen? I've seen bits and pieces, but not yeah. the whole movie. Well, uh, actually, um, this movie was released in the summer of 1984. So I was dating my wife at the time, and we, we went to see Gremlins. And so kind of a, a horror comedy classic. And, you know, the, the premise of the movie is that um, this uh, teenager named uh, Billy Peltzer, I think, receives a, a, a mogwai from his father as a gift. And his father purchases this this creature from a, an antique dealer in Chinatown. And there's like three, you know, rules. I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, don't expose it to light because the light will kill the mogwai. Okay. The second one was uh, don't uh, get it wet. Okay. And then the third one was don't feed it after midnight. Okay. Three very important rules. And, and of course, the, the mogwai that, that Billy receives is a cute little creature named, that he nicknames Gizmo. And one of his friends is messing around, and he gets water on Gizmo. Oh, no. And then you know, three more or th- four or five more little Gizmos are spawned, right? <laughs> little Mogwais are spawned. But these are a lot more mischievous, and they, they trick Billy into feeding them after midnight. Okay. And they wind up forming a cocoon, and then out hatches the, this reptilian type of creature called a gremlin, that wreaks all kinds of havoc on the town, right? Okay. Stripe is the villain, and he goes to the YMCA and gets in the pool and, you know, spawns yeah. more more, uh, more gremlins. But the point here is that, you know, there's this creature that can exist in two forms. One is a, a sweet, you know, right. you know, harmless form, and the other one is a is an evil, malevolent form. Okay. And that actually is is true when it comes to the nucleobases that are found in DNA. And there are four nucleobases, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. And they can actually exist in two different chemical forms. Uh, that, that, and those two forms are called tautomers. Uh, and they can interconvert one to the other, uh, one tot- tautomeric form to the other. And it turns out that one tautomeric form is like gr- gizmo. Okay. It's really beneficial and helpful for the structure of DNA. And the other one... It's kind of like a gremlin. It causes all kinds of problems in DNA. Right. In fact, contributes to spontaneous mutations that take place in DNA uh, during DNA replication. Hmm. And uh, there was a paper uh, that was published actually in 2002. So this isn't actually a new discovery, but it was new to me because as I was looking in the, in the lit- scientific literature for something completely different, all right. this paper popped up. And in it's uh, work done by a, a scientist at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. And in fact, I was aware of some of his other work and wrote about it in both the cell's design and fit for a purpose. But he actually shows that when it comes to the tautomers in DNA, it could be far worse, that the, hmm. the four nucleobases in DNA have the, the special property of having minimal consequences from, from uh, tautomerism compared to other potential nucleobases that could have been used in DNA so that the, the hmm. set of bases in DNA has been optimized to, for 
again, minimizing the harmful effects of, of tautomerization. So, so, so I'm gathering that tautomerase or making tautomers is part of the pro- – there, there's some level of that that happens no matter how pristine the system. And yes. So yeah. the, the recognition is the – DNA base pairs that we have, the level of or right. the consequences of that are pretty minimal, right? Compared to other forms or other bases, right? Oh, wow. right. Okay, it could have been, it could be a lot worse. So, okay. just a, a little bit of background, and then we can talk a, a little bit about the work that he did. And this is a a diagram showing um, the 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 structure of a nucleotide. So the nucleotides are the building block units that make up DNA, and they're four nucleotides that are defined by the nucleobase, uh, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. And so this is a cartoon showing the, the nucleobase uh, cytosine, and it consists of a, of a sugar called a deoxyribose sugar. It's a five-carbon sugar that will f- cyclize to form a five-membered ring. And attached to one of the OH groups is a phosphate uh, a functional group, and the other uh, to the one to the... Um, the nucleobase, um, sorry, check that, to the, the, the OH group in the number one position, the nucleobase is attached. And here, again, it's, it's cytosine. Mm-hmm. And then what ends up happening is that in order for, to form DNA, uh, the nucleotides will react with each other to form this linear, this linear chain where the phosphate groups form a, a bridge between the, the, the sugars of the the um, the sequential nucleotide subunits, right, and then the the nucleobases extend kind of as a side group, and there are two different uh, polynucleotide strands that come together, uh, and they they interact to form like a ladder architecture where the mm-hmm. the backbone is like the uprights, the the side groups are um, like the rungs of the ladder, and you always have a, a very special set of pairing of the two strands where adenine from one strand always pairs with thymine on the other, guanine always pairs with cytosine. You can see that in the diagram. Uh, the adenine and guanine are purines. They, they consist of a fused five-membered ring and a six-membered ring. And then the pyrimidines, which are thymine and cytosine, are six-membered rings. And so the the distance between the strands is always the same. Right. It's it's in the the interaction between the two strands is uh, at least uh, the is is driven by hydrogen bonding interactions, where there's very specific hydrogen bonding interactions. So the uh, adenine in one strand always pairs with thymine on the other. Again, guanine with cytosine. I have to say, I, I don't know why it just struck me as now these are. Very complex and elegant molecules. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you know, you think of, you got this. You know, just look at the the the, the magenta ones there. They're, it's like they're providing this backbone between the area. Yeah, they're they're part of this backbone as well as the bridge. I, it's like that's just an impressive looking molecule. It is very much. And then if you twist it, you get the the well known uh, DNA double helix. But what's most important today for us is, again, the, this interaction between thymine and adenine and guanine and cytosine, and it's, uh, the interaction is mediated by these, these highly specific hydrogen bonding interactions between the uh, different uh, atoms of thymine and adenine and guanine and cytosine. Now, uh, when it comes to this phenomena of uh, tautomerization, 
All right, this is a, an example of a, of, a, of a tautomerization reaction. And this is if somebody takes organic chemistry and you take the second semester of organic chemistry as an undergraduate, you'll learn about the, these, this mm -hmm. interconversion. And so this is a molecule of acetone. Uh, and on the left-hand side is what's called the keto tautomer. Uh, and the, on the, the right-hand side is called the enol tautomer. And so what ends up happening uh, formally is that a hydrogen from the, uh, the carbon bound to the carbonyl, that's a, a, the methyl group, one of the hydrogens from that methyl group will migrate to the oxygen. And then as a result of that, the double bond between the carbon and the oxygen will uh, and the, will switch with the single bond mm -hmm. between the two carbons. And so you wind up with this tautomerization reaction. Right. And it turns out that the, the keto form is the, is the thermodynamically more stable form. So okay. most of, the, of acetone, when it's dissolved in solution, will exist in the keto form. But spontaneously, if the conditions are right, if, it's, if there's acid or base in the solution, mm -hmm. it'll interconvert naturally to the enol form and okay. wind up with a, an equilibrium between the two forms. Now, there are other types of tautomerization that exists beyond the keto-enol tautomerization. So, so the tautomerization is just effectively you take the same elements, right. largely the same structure, but they're just, you know, where the hydrogen bond, where the double bonds right. are, those, those move around within the molecule. Right, yeah, okay. they're, they're, they're interconvertible. And so we talked about the keto-enol form, but there's also other tautomers that have been discovered. We don't need to get into the specifics, mm -hmm. but the lactam, lactim form, the amide, the imid form, the amine in the uh, imine, imine form. And so, again, it's a very similar thing where a hydrogen is migrating from one function, function from one atom to, right. um, to the oxygen or the nitrogen, and then the double bond switches. So that... Right. The chemistry is the same. Now, in DNA, there are, there are these two different tautomeric forms. So for adenine and cytosine, there's an amino and an imino form. Mm -hmm. And then for, the, for guanine and thymine, it's the lactam and lactim form. Right, okay. And again, the, the amino and the lactam forms are the more stable the lactim and the amino forms are less stable. But you can you get this interconversion taking place. It happens spontaneously. So at any one point in time, there is going to be a proportion right, of, okay. of, of DNA in these in these different tautomeric forms. Now the problem is, is that the amino and the lactim forms have different hydrogen bonding properties mm -hmm. than the, the lactam and the amino forms. And that difference in hydrogen bonding means that an adenine will pair with a cytosine instead of with a thymine, and a oh, really? guanine will pair with a thymine instead of a cytosine. And so when that happens during DNA replication, it'll actually lead to a misincorporation of the wrong base into the, into the DNA strand, which leads to a substitution mutation. Right, okay. And so some DNA will spontaneously have mutations that are introduced, and some of that, that the spontaneous mutations is attributable to the, these ketoenotautomers. So some of it is unavoidable, right. but it, it's, a, it's a real problem. Well, this guy, Donald McDonald, was interested in— That's a great name. It, it is, yeah. <laughs> it was interested in, you know, is there something unique about the, uh, the selection of the, the nucleobases in DNA? Because one of the big questions— in biochemistry is why 
does DNA have it, the composition it has? Mm-hmm. You know, why is the backbone made up of phosphate and uh, deoxyribose? Why are these four nucleobases cho- chosen? And in fact, in um, Fit for a Purpose, I have a whole chapter devoted to discussing why the structure of DNA is the way that it is. It's not haphazard. Mm-hmm. It actually is has to be precisely the structure that it has for life to even be possible. Okay. And that there's not really alternatives to, to DNA that exist. Uh, but his question was really the why question. Why these four nucleobases? Mm-hmm. In fact, he's published a number of papers exploring that why question, why these four nucleobases. And so he, he basically does these quantum mechanical calculations looking at these alternate uh, tautomeric forms for, for adenine, cytosine, thymine, and guanine. Then he does the same thing for imaginary DNAs that would be made up of other non-natural nucleobases. Uh, when, when we look at you know, the, the, what would be potentially available in the prebiotic environment, there would be a whole host of other nucleobases okay. that could have found their way into DNA. And, and what he discovered is that the four nucleobases in DNA are unique as a set in that they have a, that, that the, the, that the, the uh, tautomeric form that gives you appropriate hydrogen bonding is by far more stable than the, the tautomeric form okay. that would cause mispairing. But for the other non-natural bases, that difference isn't as great. And so mm-hmm. if other nucleobases would have been used in DNA, other than these four, you'd have a, mispairing would be a much greater problem. Spontaneous mutations would be a much more severe problem. So he's suggesting that this is part of the rationale for why these nucleobases made it into DNA and other nucleobases didn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, um, that in and of itself, you could say, well, maybe, it, well, number one, it, it, it's suggesting that the composition of DNA, at least with respect to the nucleobases, isn't just simply the outworking of historically contingent evolutionary processes, that there was right. something, some force that selected the components of DNA, at least the nucleobase components. So, well, so that would be, you know, there, there would be these things that would be going along, and this is the only one that worked to have a stable right. system that worked so, for a while. So, so you could say, well, you know, maybe this is reflecting natural selection at work, right. some kind of chemical version of natural selection. But what's interesting is Donald McDonald also did an, uh, other studies where he showed that the four nucleobases in DNA are the only four that you that could that could be selected that would actually show a distortion in the double helix if mispairing took place. So, oh, okay. So, 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 this is, so this is a double optimization. It's not only optimized mm-hmm. to minimize the effects of tautomerization, but, it's, but if tautomerization happens and you get mispairing, these are the only four bases that will actually cause a distortion in the double helix. Now, why that is important is that distortion essentially allows the cell's machinery to recognize a mispairing mm-hmm. has taken place, and there are mechanisms that can essentially excise out the wrong base and replace it with the correct base okay. or with the correct nucleotide. Right. On top of that, these four nucleobases also turn out to be the four that display the greatest degree of UV stability. Okay. That, that when, the, these, when nucleobases absorb UV radiation – if the, the molecules can't irradiate away that, that radiation as heat, chemical uh-huh. bonds will break apart. Right. 
And, and so the four nucleobases have a structure that allows them the, to be flexible enough to absorb UV radiation in a radiated away as heat. Right. And, and, and if it can't, the reactions that take place produce these, com- these compounds that, again, will cause a distortion of the double helix and are readily re- repairable. Mm-hmm. So to me, what moves us away from natural selection being the explanation to maybe a, a teleology or a design mm-hmm. is the fact that you've got these these this triple coincidence. Right. It's one thing to say, hey, these four nucleobases are optimized for, you know, minimizing the harmful effects of tautomerization. But then you would expect that maybe there should be other combinations of bases that mm-hmm. might be better at, at uh, you know, uh, causing a distortion in the double helix, or there might be other bases that would be actually have greater UV stability Mm -hmm. and that the structure of DNA from an evolutionary perspective should reflect kind of a a competition of those three three effects. The fact that these four nucleobases simultaneously have these three ideal properties Mm -hmm. that, that are all critical for DNA's role as a information storage molecule where you want that information mm-hmm. to be in have integrity and to be transmitted to the next you know during dna replication with a high degree of fidelity the fact that these four nucleobases are just right and you have this triple coincidence either says things we got really lucky or that that there was an intentionality to the structure of dna this your description is make it reminds me a lot of water, um, you know that people say, oh, you could have this this liquid, that liquid, or the other liquid, and yet when you start looking at water, it's not that it just has it, you know, gets a little bit less dense as the as its solid right. forms. It's also got a real high heat capacity. Right. It's also got it's also got. A, yeah. Once you start putting that all together, it's not like oh, there's water in this other right. mix of materials. It's like there's water and then everything else. It sounds a lot like yep. these nucleobases are right. there's this and everything right. else. Right. And so to me, you know, this is this is part of this part of the evidence that that suggests that DNA is designed. Right. Is that that the, there's a rationale for why its compositional makeup is what it is. And and in fit for a purpose, I talk about why phosphate, mm-hmm. you know, and why deoxyribose and and the fact that these are also unique components that give just right properties right. to DNA. Um, so, you know, that optimality, that rationale suggests design. That's the type of yeah. feature you'd expect for design. But there's a type of anthropic principle at work here, too, in that, that, that the composition of DNA, let's just limit it to the nucleobases, seems to be constrained by the laws of nature itself. Right, yeah. The laws of nature are responsible for... The, the tautomerization, it's responsible for the pairing of, of the nucleobase. It's, it's responsible for the, the UV stability or the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the nature of the UV interactions with these nucleobases. Right. So the, the laws of nature are constraining, you know, what, you know, what are the requirements for DNA? But then it's, it's eerie that, that the components that are in DNA have these just right properties mm-hmm. and that they are unique. Right. <laughs> that 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 there's the this is the only set. So when you combine that, it suggests that there is a, a deep seated teleology that that there is a, a mind that intention DNA to, to be exactly the way that it is. Well, and it seems to extend beyond that because those same 
laws that structure DNA to work that way are the same laws that under or that drive the properties that water has. Right. Are the same laws that drive the properties that carbon has, right. which also are critical for the early universe so that you produce a universe that has abundant hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon. Right. So it's not just Oh, let's look at it in this. It's like right. you could change one of those. In fact, I've heard people say, well, you could tweak the laws of physics so that you'd right. still get abundant carbon in there or whatever. But you're now also affecting water and right. the DNA molecules. And you're assuming that you're going to get something that all comes together and works as well. And right. that seems to be a much bigger stretch than, oh, I've got this one thing. It's like there's this yeah. whole suite of things. It's a fascinating discovery. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and let's let just explore that point a little bit more because you know when I wrote fit for a purpose part of the 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 the, the premise of writing the book was uh, where I make the case that there's a biochemical anthropic principle is that there are two interpretations of the anthropic tr principle right mm -hmm. one is there's a universe the other be, um, we, we just happen to be in this lucky universe some kind of you know non-theistic explanation and part of my argument was that if indeed the anthropic principle is reflecting the work of a creator, then you would expect that that it's not just the laws of physics and the constants of physics, but that when we go into chemistry, that there's the, the laws of chemistry, of course, are derived from the laws of physics, but mm -hmm. they can they kind of form their own set of laws. Right. That, okay. Right. And that that we ought to see then at you know also a biochemical anthropic principle where Again, the laws of biochemistry are derived from the laws of chemistry and the laws of physics, but they form their own, you know, unique set as well. Right. And that if we see these anthropic coincidences stack up at these different regimes of complexity, it really suggests that there is a deep teleology to the to the whole shebang. That mm -hmm. there's a right. It, you know, it's it's one thing to have fine tuning in the laws of physics, but then if you didn't see it at, in chemistry or in biochemistry. Then you would say, well, maybe we just happen yes. to be in the lucky universe, but there's something going on here that's highly suspicious. Mm -hmm. You know, to your point, and it, and it really does constrain the idea that well, you could tweak the laws of physics to solve this problem, but that has ramifications a lot of places. I think it speaks in some sense, to the puddle analogy. You know, everybody's, mm -hmm. you know, puddles, like, wow, that's a unique form that just fits in there. There's this idea that whatever, you know, water is going to adapt to whatever form. That's the way the physics is designed. There isn't a lot of capacity for life to adapt. There are a very stringent right. set of criteria that make it. So you can't have other kinds of life and then this one right. wins out and this is just what you get. It seems like this may be the only way you can do it. So there's only one shape for a puddle and it's this very complex, elaborate shape. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the person who really is the father of, of anthropic reasoning isn't uh, Brandon Carter, but it's actually Lawrence Henderson. Okay, right. And he was this Har uh, physiologist at Harvard uh, who in the early 1900s recognized what he called the fitness of the environment. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, noted that water and, and, and uh, carbon dioxide and phosphates and, um, and, uh, and the nature of organic compounds have these just right set of properties that create an environment that uniquely makes life possible. 
Right. And so his point was, if it, the environment wasn't the way that it, it was, life would never even exist. You, evolution is only possible in a particular environment right. in the universe. And and he argued that there's there's a the coincident this can't just simply be coincidence that all these things are lining up that there has to be a deep seated teleology to the universe that that is creating an environment that even makes life possible right and so you know in terms of the puddle analogy drawing inspiration from henderson to me it's it's like we're we're living in a universe where we we actually have concave surfaces right. that 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 it's the, the the it's not that so much the puddle adopts the shape of the hole it's that we live in a universe where holes are even possible mm-hmm. right that if things were different it would be either a flat universe not not spatially yes. now, <laughs> or or it would be convex but it wouldn't be concave so and you just don't get puddles in the you first just don't place. get puddles in the first place so well, that's fascinating. I, it's, I love listening and learning. Uh, bio, biochemistry is much harder, but the, the the complexity and the connections that it makes are right compelling in a right. in a very real way. So, well, you know, and I know we're trying to bring things to a close, <laughs> but you know, this idea. I mean, oftentimes what you see people do is say, "Look, look at the complexity of biochemistry." That that level of complexity doesn't seem to have any rationale to it. Mm-hmm. It seems to be haphazard. This is the type of thing that you know an unguided, historically contingent evolutionary process would produce. But then when we start asking the why question, you know what that ends up doing is exposing this this deep seated rationale mm-hmm. for why things are the way they are. That it's it's not haphazard. There seems to be you know, uh, again, an an intentionality to it, which means at minimum, it's not unguided, historically contingent processes, but that the way things look has been prescribed ahead of time by the very laws of nature. And then it's eerie that it's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Agreed. (laughs) So, Well, thanks, Fuzz. I really appreciate that discussion. And yeah, just uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, really uh, had a fascinating discussion about DNA design and uh, cognitive biases. Want to encourage you to join the discussion below in the comments. And remember to like this video and subscribe for more content. We drop a new episode of Star Cells and God each Thursday. They're here available on YouTube and on your favorite app. And want to just remind you to share this video with a friend and remember that the more we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe.